You guys ready to get in the Word? So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to particularly be in two places. We'll first be in Matthew chapter 19, and secondly, we'll jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But this morning, I'm going to be concluding a little mini-series that we've been doing on the subject of marriage. And um, really, I'm going to end by looking at uh, the subject of divorce. We looked at a few of the divorce passages um, last Sunday from the Old Testament, particularly uh, Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21. But this morning, we're going to focus really on what Jesus has to say on the subject and the Apostle Paul. So Jesus actually says quite a, a few things about divorce. In fact, um, he mentions divorce on four different occasions, and uh, it, it comprises actually most of the teaching on divorce in Scripture comes from our Lord Jesus himself. So it's a subject that he cares about. Now, um, the last time I gave a message solely devoted to divorce was like four and a half years ago. So, you know, um, it's not a subject I particularly like to frequently preach about, but it's important that we occasionally remind ourselves about it, for Jesus thought it was pretty important, and he taught about it frequently. So, you know, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He went from town to town, village to village. A lot of times he would say the same things over and over, maybe even nuance them a little, a little different to the audience he's speaking to. That's why a lot of times we have a lot of similar parables in like Matthew, Mark, and Luke but there's slight differences. I think a lot of those slight differences um, just reflect the different audiences and the different villages that he's speaking to. It's not really that there's contradictions when you see those different uh, uh, parables he's giving or teachings he's giving, but rather it's to a whole different audience that he's speaking to. And so he shapes things and he, he speaks things according to um, you know, the context of, of the day. So. So we're uh, largely going to be looking at uh, that this morning. And, um, you know, unfortunately, many Christians are ignorant or confused about what Jesus taught about uh, a divorce. Uh, and what happens if our minds are not renewed to the word of God is that the prevailing attitude of the culture concerning divorce will shape how we think about the subject more than what our Lord says about it. And so I know, you know, us here, those who are, you know, brought into the family of God, those who are submitted to the lordship of Jesus, that we want the heart of God in how we, how we view the subject of marriage, how we view the subject of divorce. So that's why we're going to be looking at it this morning. And really the foundational passage for this subject, it's the longest passage in all of scripture. It's from Jesus and it's found in Matthew chapter 19. And really we're going to look at from verse 1 to verse 12 this morning. And so uh, Jesus gives, um, this uh, teaching is also recorded in, in Mark's gospel, but Matthew gives, um, he gives more details to what Jesus was teaching. So we're going to look at the account in Matthew instead of focusing on Mark's account, and we're actually going to pick up in verse 3. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 says this, And the Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, 
let not man separate. You know, when traditional weddings say that, what are they saying? They're just quoting the words of Jesus. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So what's going on here? Let's set the context of Jesus' teaching. We see that it's one of his confrontations with a group called the Pharisees. And those sorts of confrontations are regular throughout the Gospels. In fact, I think he confronts the Pharisees more than any other Jewish group, more than the, the scribes or the Sadducees. Well, some of the scribes were Pharisees, but more than the Sadducees or the Herodians or any of, of the other religious leaders, Jesus deals a lot with this particular group of of um, Jews at that time, and they were a powerful sect right there who held uh, important positions. Some of them held important positions in the Sanhedrin. A lot of them, you know, were circuit teachers. A lot of them just, they were people who actually cared a lot about what God's word said. And so they're constantly getting in, you know, arguments with Jesus, trying to test him and see, well, does this guy really know his stuff? And so, um, you know, the fact is most of them didn't like Jesus. There were a few who did, and in the early church we do see some of the Pharisees begin to join the early church. But by and large, most of them did not like Jesus, and they did not like the early church. So we see them regularly seeking to trap Jesus, to stump Jesus, by presenting him with theologically difficult questions. And here, they present him with a debate that had been brewing in their own circle for several decades. Um, About eight years before Jesus' own birth, one of Israel's most renowned and influential rabbis, who is quoted throughout their Talmud, died. And his name was Hillel. Some of you might have heard of him before. Hillel the Elder. And his teaching was held in really high regard by a lot of the Pharisees, scribes, and the lawyers. And one of his um, influences on the culture at that time had to do with how he approached the subject of divorce. Now, last Sunday, if you were here, you noticed how when we looked at the divorce law in the Old Testament in Exodus 21 and in Deuteronomy 24, we saw that uh, divorce was only permissible when someone broke one of the foundational marriage vows. So either they were sexually unfaithful or they were abusing their wife by not giving them the basic provisions basically they needed to live and survive. So in contrast to that, Hillel argued that the reasons that one could obtain a divorce were actually far more broad than those basic essentials. Especially, he said that the husband had far more broad reasons for which he could divorce his wife. And he came to that conclusion Uh, by arguing that the divorce text in Deuteronomy should be interpreted differently. So let's look at that text again. Deuteronomy 24.1 says this, If a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he has found something offensive in her, then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her, and evict her from his house. So that phrase, the meaning of the phrase something offensive, that was what was under debate in Jesus' day. Hillel translated the phrase as a cause for sexual immorality. 
and he believed if this passage was solely limiting divorce to sexual immorality, then there wouldn't be the sense of a cause attached to it. So he read it basically saying, if a man's wife does anything that causes him to want to commit sexual immorality, he can give her a certificate of divorce, and he can evict her from his house. And uh, because the text is speaking directly to the husband, Hillel believed the power of any cause divorce rested in the hand of the husband. Well, his wasn't the only view at the time. There was another younger rabbi living at the same time as Hillel by the name of Shammai. In fact, he died right before Jesus' ministry began in AD 30. And he took a different stance on divorce. He taught that Moses wasn't teaching any cause divorce. If my wife does anything that wants me to, to cause me to commit sexual immorality, I can divorce her but rather divorce solely for cases of sexual immorality. Now, that was the traditional understanding of that text. On top of that, Shammai argued that this law taught the husband was obligated to divorce his wife if there was sexual immorality, meaning you didn't have a choice to restore that relationship, restore that covenant. It was broken and it could not be restored. So, summarizing their two points of view at the time of Jesus, it was something like this. I just want to quote, this is what the Jewish Talmud says. This is what a lot of modern, modern day Judaism is based off. It's based off the Talmud. And it says this, The school of Shammai say, A man should not divorce his wife unless he found in her a matter of indecency. And the school of Hillel say, Even if she spoiled his dish. So, <laughs> you can understand that um, a lot of the guys, well, they thought, well, if there's more power in my hands in the school of Shalel, I just might as well belong to this, this, this school of Hillel. And so Josephus, who was the main Jewish historian during the time of the early church, around the time of Jesus, he writes, in fact, that Hillel's opinion, his school of thought, was the most popular one. And Shammai's was not as popular. And in fact, after Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D., and really, the only sect that continues of the early Jewish sects are the Pharisees. It's the school of Hillel that becomes prominent. So Jewish divorce at that time basically was just any cause divorce. So any cause divorce was just known as divorce because there was no other schools of thought that were vying with it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, much of the early church and much of the church through history did not know a lot about the context of the debates between Hillel and Shammai. And that led to some confusion among early Christians about Jesus' teaching on this subject. And that's one reason why there are a lot of differences between denominations concerning divorce. But when we, prop, we have a proper understanding about the debate on any cause divorce, what the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 19, it makes a lot of more sense. So let's look at verse 3 again, Matthew 19, 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The 1977 NASB says this, for any cause at all, right? This is not a question about whether divorce is ever lawful. A lot of times people come and they read a translation where they think the Pharisees are asking Jesus if divorce is ever lawful. But every Jew, every single Jew at Jesus' time agreed that divorce was lawful 
in certain circumstances because they knew that God permitted it in his law in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24. So the Pharisees are not asking whether it's ever lawful for a man to divorce his wife, but whether any cause divorce is lawful, whether the teaching of Rabbi Hillel is the correct interpretation. So it would be similar if someone today came to Jesus and asked him, Jesus, is no-fault divorce lawful? Basically asking, do you agree with Hillel? Well, instead of giving a yes or no answer, Jesus really never gives a yes or no answer, right? He gives a theologically rich answer. And Jesus doesn't want us just to have the right answers, right? But he wants us to understand the why of the right answers. He wants us to think through the answers. He wants us to not just do the correct thing, but he wants us to do the correct thing from the heart because we understand why we're doing the correct thing, right? To have ownership over why we do things and act the way Jesus calls us to act. So let's look at how he responds, picking up in verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So he's quoting there from Genesis 2. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here we have him responding to this question about any cause divorce. And he says, any cause divorce is sinful because in marriage there is a covenantal bond where God joins two people together as one. And a covenantal bond cannot be broken for any old reason you want. Only specific things can break a covenant, not anything. So man is called to hold fast to his wife. That's what Genesis 2 says, or other translations to cleave to her. The idea is being glued to your wife, where it's not just two entities anymore, but it's one entity. He, he's not seeking some escape hatch from his troubled relationship, but he understands that he's entered into this covenantal relationship that is, that is much stronger, that you know just can't be wiggled out of for any old reason. Well, these Pharisees who asked Jesus this question, you know, they're not satisfied with that answer that he gives. They know he's contradicting Hillel's teaching, which they believe, you know, is the, the better interpretation of Deuteronomy. So they press Jesus further about that specific divorce law, about Deuteronomy 24. And, and let's look what it says again in verse 7. They, they respond to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So here they bring up Deuteronomy 24.1. And, and, and the Pharisees, they want Jesus to be more explicit about when divorce is permissible, seeing he doesn't agree with any cause divorce. And on top of the, that, the Pharisees are assuming that Moses' law there in Deuteronomy 24 must be read as a command for divorce in the situation it's talking about. But the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 24 is ambiguous to where it could either be translated as a command to write a divorce certificate or as a permission to write a, a divorce certificate, an allowance. And 
what we see with the Pharisees, including those who were of the school of Hillel and of Shammai, basically all of the Jews at that time, they interpreted it as a command, right? That if you find this matter of indecency, you find the sexual unfaithfulness in the wife, you aren't even given an option. You are commanded to present her with a certificate of divorce and to evict her from your house. But what does Jesus say to that? Does he say that Moses gave a command like, you know, Hillel and Shammai were interpreting? Let's read verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what? Allowed, not commanded. He allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, the traditional interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, right? And marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus here clarifies for us what the sense of Deuteronomy 24 is. It's not a command, but it is an allowance, and it's only allowance in a very specific situation. Here translated sexual immorality. In Greek, it's the word pornea. Some uh, view that word as expansive enough to include not just sexual unfaithfulness, but also abuse of the uh, vows in, in, in Exodus 21, where there's some sort of abuse where some, someone's uh, life is in danger, they're not taking care of that sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's interesting that that phrase, except for sexual immorality, doesn't appear, appear in Mark's account. And so Mark simply, as Jesus says, say, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. In Mark, it sounds as if all divorce and re remarriage is sinful, regardless of any circumstance. So why is that phrase, except for sexual imm immorality, in Matthew, but not in Mark? I think the most likely reason is that Mark's original audience would have understood that Jesus was commenting on any cause of divorce, not on divorce in general. So Mark condenses a lot of the Jesus stories in his gospel. It's about two-thirds the size of Matthew. And Mark likely viewed that little phrase in the story as unnecessary because he knew his audience would have already known that divorce for and remarriage for the cause of sexual immorality was lawful. And so he was able to save space in his gospel manuscript. And that's why, you know, I, I say people read Mark and they think, oh man, you know, it never is permissible. And then they don't understand that there's the parallel story that has the fuller context that shows, well, no, actually, indeed, in certain cases, it is permissible. So I just want to give a summary of what first century Jewish teaching looked like. Here we have a slide, I believe. Um, so the first... Uh, a teacher, we have Rabbi Hillel, you know, who taught something called uh, progressive uh, any cause divorce. Uh, then we have uh, Rabbi Shammai, uh, who taught uh, traditional uh, partial cause divorce. And then we have uh, Rabbi Jesus, who taught restorative partial cause uh, divorce. So, you know, uh, in contrast to both Hillel and Shammai, Jesus taught divorce was not a must but only an allowance in cases of hardness of heart and when there was sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus was always about redemption first and foremost. He wanted husbands and wives to grasp first and foremost the seriousness of their covenantal union. He wanted husbands and wives to grasp that the marriage bond that God created 
could not simply be severed over frustrations that somebody was having with their spouse. So what did the disciples think about this teaching? They're listening to his response to his Pharisees, and how do they respond to him? Well, look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So, um, the disciples are like, Jesus, you're making it even harder on us. They, they viewed his teaching as radical. Jesus was endowing marriage with a seriousness that it had lacked for generations. And face to face with the seriousness of the marriage covenant, some of the disciples pondered whether marriage was even the optimal state in life. It is better not to marry. I guess they were really afraid about getting stuck with a bad wife. Right? And so these guys, they had the minds of their culture that was shaping them, right? And they just think, well, man, if I got in a bad relationship with a wife and she was doing something who wanted, it caused me to want to be unfaithful, I kind of like Kalel's teaching. I'll trade her, you know, for somebody else. Um, but, but Jesus, you know, he's like, no, that's, that's not wrong. And it's interesting that when they say it's better not to marry, Jesus doesn't even fully rebuke them. Because he doesn't see marriage life as something that's an ultimate reality that everyone needs to partake in, which a lot of the Jews at his time did. They just thought the first command, you know, uh, that you're, you're supposed to get married and be fruitful and multiply. You just got to do it. And everybody did it. And really, you did it regardless of, of circumstance. All of Jesus's 12 apostles were married. That's what Paul makes clear. I think it's in 1 Corinthians uh, 9 or 2 Corinthians 9, something like that. But they were all basically married. Jesus wasn't married. But look what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 19, verse 11. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Kind of like Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, whether literally or figuratively for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. <laughs> so, you know, most people aren't able to receive that, right? Most people say, man, I can't receive that. Paul even gives similar instruction. And, you know, he's like, man, I, I just, most people, most men can't do that. They say, no, I'd rather be married. But he's saying, you know, if you can, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of your life, if you really think it's better not to marry, well, that's not, that's not a terrible idea. You don't have to get married. Uh, singleness can be a truly healthy and meaningful vocation in life, like the Apostle Paul, who wasn't married. And, you know, that's where we're going to turn to next here. So if you want to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul um, had to deal with divorce in a different context. So Jesus is dealing with divorce in the context of these different Jewish interpretations between Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Well, Paul is dealing with Corinthians in a deeply Hellenistic, Greek, sex-saturated culture of Corinth, which was like the capital of prostitution in the ancient world. And they had all sorts of sexual stuff. They had their wife, they had their bath girl, they had their little boy, they had all, it was a perverse culture, perverse thing. And, and Paul is now speaking into a divorce culture there that also had something similar to any uh, any cause uh, divorce like the Jews and uh, it, it was 
he has to speak in things related to Roman law because that's how the people in his congregation, they were dealing with that situation through the lens of Roman law. So, um, uh, we'll, we'll dive into that here. You know, um, Jesus, in the Gospels, it only records him giving one explicit reason uh, for divorce, right? For pornea. Um, Christian scholars disagree, like I said, over how expansive that is. Uh, but um, regardless of how expansive someone views the violation of pornea in the statements of Jesus to be, we must remember Jesus was only ever discussing their, the divorce law in Deuteronomy. Uh, Jesus never commented on the divorce law in Exodus, and he was um, simply commenting on how men were abusing the divorce law in Deuteronomy. So he doesn't actually give a complete uh, dialogue on divorce, but he gives us a wisdom framework on how to think about it. Yet it is clear that Jesus has a more expansive understanding of divorce than just pornea because he raised up his apostle of grace, the apostle Paul, to speak on it, and Paul actually gives a reason beyond just pornea for divorce. So let's look at what he says. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Paul writes, To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. He's talking about Jesus here. He's talking about something we just read in Matthew 19. A wife must not separate from her husband. What God has joined, let not man separate. He repeats what Jesus said. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So he begins here by repeating Jesus. And, um, uh, but Paul, you know, he's writing to a people who lived in a society that also had no divorce laws, no fault divorce laws. Under Roman law, one simply had to separate from their spouse for divorce to be legal. Romans didn't care, right? <laughs> They didn't care what Moses said. They didn't care what Jesus said. They didn't care what Paul said, right? So Paul has to say, well, you're supposed to live differently, and you have a higher standard than Roman law. You have the teaching of the Lord Jesus. So what I receive from the Lord, that's what I'm going to deliver to you, and you're going to take the Lord Jesus' teaching as authoritative from your life, not what Roman law says, right? Not what 21st century American law says. I'm going to take with the word of my Lord Jesus says. So in this context, the first instruction Paul gives to the Christians is that they are not to use the sinful separating divorce provision of their culture. He then instructs those who had separated to seek reconciliation. God demands his people to reverse hard-hearted, no fault or any cause divorces. So his first uh, principle can be stated like this. Do not take advantage of no fault divorce laws in your land. And in cases where no-fault divorce has already taken place, seek reconciliation and do not look for another spouse. So after calling Christians to reconciliation who have sinly participated in Corinth's no-fault divorce laws, he goes on to say this, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now he doesn't have a specific command from Jesus' earthly ministry. That if any brother has a wife, he's using the wisdom principles of Jesus, and he's anointed by the Spirit of God to now apply a new principle. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So Paul is dealing with some Christians in Corinth who believed on the Lord Jesus, who had entered the church while their spouse had not believed on the Lord Jesus, right? So they're asking, well, what do we do in this situation? And Paul wanted to stress that the new believers should view their situation as an opportunity for their spouse to be made holy. I think what he means probably is that the believer's witness, that the believer's presence, that the believer's covenantal oneness, even with their unbelieving spouse, can lead to that spouse's ultimate conversion and holiness. In addition, right, he says, not only is that good for your spouse, but it's also good for the children, right? Because the children will grow up in a healthy environment. They will always have one parent around who believes on the Lord and teaches them in the ways of the Lord. They will be raised by a believing parent who cares about them and who instructs them about the Lord and instructs them to come to faith. Right? So in that sense, the kids too are holy. They are set apart, holy, for the Lord's purposes rather than for worldly purposes, which if they had just got a divorce, they would be set apart too for worldly purposes also. So a second principle can be stated like this. God doesn't want to see broken families. The presence of one Christian will transform and preserve both the unbelieving spouse as well as the children. Don't divorce over a spouse lacking faith. After calling Christians to repentance and pointing out sinful kinds of divorce they are not to participate in, Paul proceeds to teach how a Christian should act if they are the victim of a no-fault divorce in that Roman culture from an unbelieving spouse. A victim from an unbelieving spouse. Remember, if it's from a believing spouse, they're supposed to remain single and be reconciled. But here, here, here's what he says about the unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7.15 But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul is teaching that in the case of desertion by the unbelieving spouse, the deserted Christian is no longer enslaved. Other translations say no longer bound to that marriage covenant. Because in that case, the covenant was broken based off of the Exodus 21 principle. And when Paul says one was no longer enslaved or bound, he's simply using the legal jargon of that day. To no longer be enslaved meant the covenant had died and one was free to enter into a new covenant with a new spouse. We'll also see that Paul did not want the believer to fight the unbeliever, right, over the divorce, but rather he said, let it be. Let it be, that's the same word that's used for forgiveness in the New Testament. It, cor it, it corresponds just to someone dropping all the debts that you hold against them. Let it be. In difficult circumstance of a divorce against a Christian's will, Paul says that a Christian is called to a forgiving heart, a peaceful disposition, and a recognition that they are freed by the Lord. Now that is a lot easier said than done in the moment, right? But with Christ, and with a community that loves you, you can even be kind and forgiving and peaceable to the people who hurt you most, right? So when it comes to divorce, the last word people tend to think about really is peace, right? <laughs> Rather, we think of wars in the courts, right? We turn on, you know, 
CBS, NBC, right? All the daytime programs, which spouses, you know, going crazy at one another. We think of uncontrollable anger. We think of conflict, retaliation, ah, right? But Paul teaches that Christians are called to rise above that kind of vengeful behavior. We must seek the path of peace. After all attempts toward reconciliation have been exhausted, the church can encourage the deserted believer to rest in their freedom and to trust God for what lies ahead of them, right? So Paul's third principle can be like this, stayed like this. A Christian is called to forgiveness and peace if they are abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. They are also called to recognize they are freed from that marriage covenant, even though the unbeliever obtained a divorce contrary to God's desires. Well, seeing that both Jesus and Paul, in continuity with God's law, taught that divorce is permissible in circumstances, what they teach about remarriage? Well, Luke uh, 16, 18 says this. Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the woman who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, um, is every remarried person an adulterer? Well, no, 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 not so fast. Now, some denominations teach that. In fact, Roman Catholics teach that, right? They teach something called the indissolubility of marriage. Um, and so, but they have their own kind of divorce settlements. <laughs> they just call annulments. But, you know, that's, I don't think, what Jesus is teaching at all. And I think that's a great abuse of that passage, because you've got to look at the context. What did Jesus say right before that in verse 17? It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So the context of Jesus' statement about divorce and remarriage is what he says about the law. And the law permitted divorce and remarriage. So did Jesus say not one stroke of the law would drop from the law and then in the very next breath drop a bunch of strokes from the law? No. Luke assumes his readers and listeners are familiar with the lawful exceptions. In his parallel account in Matthew, Jesus makes explicit in a similar statement what would have been implicit in the statement in Luke. Matthew 5, 32, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you that every man who puts away his wife except on the ground of, except, here's the exception clause again, except on the ground of unfaithfulness causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries her when so divorced commits adultery. So Jesus is teaching that remarriage is adulterous only under specific circumstances. Namely, remarriages contracted after invalid divorces. But even if one believed Jesus taught all remarried divorces are adulterers, then he's not consistent with himself. Because in John chapter 4, he tells the, the woman at the uh, well in Samaria, he says, you've had five husbands. Well, she couldn't really have five husbands. She could only have one husband and then be an adulterer with five other men. But Jesus said she had five husbands. He's assuming, again, he's, he's assuming that there is indeed divorce and remarriage under specific circumstances. Right? The only condition we have for what remarriage is one condition. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7.39. It says this, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if the, her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. And so the, the condition is that we want to be equally yoked in marriage. And, um, you know, th this is the, the, basic, uh, the basic teaching. So, you know, uh, there's a lot here to think about, to ponder on. And obviously, how many know that all of us fall short of the glory of God? <laughs> 
And so people probably are, might find themselves in a situation where they say, man, I didn't actually handle that the way the Bible taught me to handle it, right? I didn't handle it the way Jesus taught me to handle it. I didn't handle it the way Paul says to handle it. Am I just in a terrible circumstance? Well, the, the beautiful thing is that Jesus and God, he, he meets us right where we are, right? In all of our mess, in all of our, you know, when we, we, we've screwed up. And he says, no, now, now just come along and, you know, uh, we'll, we'll take things from here, right? We can't go back and fix everything that we screwed up, right? We can only move forward by the grace of God, knowing that he's forgiven us of our sins, knowing that he's cleansed us from all unrighteousness, and we go forward knowing, you know, his grace is sufficient for me, and he's going to help me in whatever relationship I am to be strong, to be faithful, to co be committed, to love like Jesus loves. Amen? Amen. And that's a, the beautiful thing we recognize when we partake of communion. We recognize that he forever always forgives us our sins, he takes care of us, he meets us right where we're at, and that we don't need to be in fear over that sort of thing. You know, when we go through trying seasons, when we go through troubled times, uh, you know, and if we ever have to experience the heartbreak of divorce or that sort of thing, the beautiful thing is that God meets us right there in, in, in our problem, in, in our frustrations. He meets us with his love. He meets us with his grace. And he heals us. He heals the brokenhearted, it says, right? He binds up their wounds. And so that's what the counsel I give to people who may be going through divorce, who have gone through divorce, is make sure you take a time uh, to properly weep, to properly mourn, to properly be healed, to properly uh, allow Jesus to, to heal you and restore you, and don't jump into another relationship right away. Allow God to heal you, fix the mess that you went through, so that you don't repeat the mess. You know, it, I think the, the divorce statistics are something like, uh, you know, uh, if you enter a second marriage, there's higher divorce rates than a first marriage. If you enter a third marriage, there's higher divorce rates than a second marriage. Because you're doomed to repeat your mess unless you allow God to fix the mess that you've gone through. Amen? But once you're fixed and restored, God makes new covenant. He is a God of new covenant, and that's what this is all about, right? So even if you've had an old covenant that's been broken, we'll just know that God is a God of new covenant, and he can restore your life.